0: Welcome back to the pod. am going to jump out in front here to do some housekeeping. First off, big shout to Smash Digital for sponsoring the show and doing so many free mini audits to TMBA listeners. A lot of you have gotten in touch with me about that and shown me your goals and your business and an incredible variety of businesses out there in TMBA land. I, I ensure you there is a wide variety of ways to make an enormously profitable living building a lifestyle business. Very cool to see what so many of you are doing and Part of the way we do that is through your email. So, today's episode, we are going to address some listener questions. In the process, we're going to refresh the concept of the Entrepreneur Mobile for 2019, along with a freshly minted approved vehicles list from the boss man. We're also going to have a discussion about cash and cash flow and how to think about it in your business. And I just want to give a little caveat out front. You know, I personally don't have any technical finance. Education. So it can be a little nerve wracking to talk about a technical topic. So send us an email if you can help us to flesh out our understanding or if you have any tips for the audience. But in today's app, we're going to talk about cash and cash flow from our own personal experience. Now, at the end of the episode, I'm going to return for a somewhat extended dynamite deal portion of the program. So stick around for that. So let's get rolling. Bossman,
1: welcome back to the pod. How you doing? Thanks for having me on the beginning of the show. I
0: appreciate it. <laughs> Happy to be here. Ian, we are digging into some listener questions. The first one came through slash voicemail. Let's play it. Hey, Tropical mba I uh, hope you're well. My name is Dave burrows uh, I run a ski school called Snow Pro Ski School uh, here in
1: Switzerland. Whilst we're not a location independent business, a lot of what you guys talk about is is relevant for how uh, how i'm trying to operate my business out here i've been working my way through your back catalog and i really really enjoyed your uh, your interview with that guy on china that was amazing very much enjoyed the last q and a which prompted me to write to you my question is concerning cash flow cash flow is something i always never really seem to get right and i'd love it if you had some ideas that you could share about you know if there's any golden rules or hard and fast
0: kind of rules that you follow in terms of getting cash flow right. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the matter. So uh, yeah, there you go. That's my question. I hope you're well. Keep up the good work. See ya. Dave, thanks. Sounds like you got a great business and thanks for the voicemail. Ian, you have not spoken about cash flow for a few years on the pod. What's going on?
1: Well, this used to be a big, uh, big concern in our business, Dan, for eight years. It's like what we thought about a lot. Recently, we haven't had to think about it so much. Our previous business was a uh, product-based business, a physical product-based business, where we manufactured in China, we designed in America, and we imported products. And
0: cash flow was the name of the game. I spent a lot of time thinking about these problems. Let's define some key terms here, Ian, about and around cash flow, and then give some general thoughts about it and maybe some tips at the end for what listeners can do to manage their cash flow effectively, but I think the first thing worth pointing out, Ian, is that you know cash flow is different from cash. it might be a little bit non-obvious. So how do you think of the differences between cash and cash flow?: Cash
1: is like cash in the bank. Cash flow is like the amount of money that's being transferred around within the business. With these businesses that have cash flow requirements like product-based businesses or some of these service-based businesses, timing is everything. So you really have to watch like when the cash is coming in and when you have to pay out suppliers, product manufacturers, et cetera.
0: Yeah, well, cash flow is a like theoretical number and it's a systemic thing. So that system can extend beyond the business. So for example, let's say you sell shoes. And you're almost out of stock. So you just spent $50,000 ordering new shoes. And meanwhile, you sell 10 pairs at 5 bucks a day. So you just put $50 into your bank account, right? So now you've got sort of like $50,000 extended for $5 shoes that are going to sell six months from now. Sounds like you need some credit, buddy. It wouldn't make sense to operate a business like that simply off of the cash that you had in the bank. That would be hampering the business, right? You want to be able to look at cash in a more systemic way. And that's what cash flow is all about.
1: And to get into it a little bit deeper, Dan, I don't know how much those shoes cost to produce. And I don't know what your margins are, but your margins are also very important
0: when you're trying to determine probably what your cash flow is going to be. Right. And the, the tricky part, When you're thinking about margins relative to cash flow, is that there's two different kinds of margin. There's the margin that's attached to the product itself. So the cost of goods sold, how much of that shoe is theoretically supposed to drop to the bottom line as profit. And then you've got something, you know, net margin in your business. So all those shoes are sitting somewhere. There's people picking up the phones. You have to pay taxes on your business and all this stuff. So Therein lies another systemic challenge in figuring out cash flow considerations is what margin matters more, the overall margin of the business or the margin that I'm theoretically attributing to that specific product? And I say theoretically, I don't know why I say that, Ian, because a lot of these things are really only as good as what you've got on paper. The margin ends up being at some level an issue of bookkeeping and how you're attributing costs to different products.
1: Many years ago, Dan, I thought about accounting as like a very cut and dry kind of procedure. Now, to me, it's just as much creative as it is cut and
0: dry. There's two other uh, terms. Why don't we define before we get into our discussion of cash flow is we talk a lot about balance sheets and profit and loss sheets or P&Ls, but we don't often define them. How do you think of a balance sheet versus a P&Lian? A balance sheet is basically a snapshot, and this can be
1: at any given time. It can be at 9 a.m. in the morning, it can be on a Thursday, whatever it is, but it's a snapshot and it's basically a sheet that shows you what your assets and liabilities are. Whereas a P&L or a profit and loss is a snapshot of the profits that are coming in your business and the loss. So your operating expenses essentially. So this is how much we made in January, this is how
0: much we spent, this is what we're left with. And that's going to be different based on essentially which kind of accounting philosophy you apply to your business as well.
1: Yeah, there's two different types, Dan. There's cash and accrual. I'd say most people tend to do accrual accounting. The difference between cash and accrual accounting is the difference in when the sales and purchases are recorded in your books. Right. Cash accounting recognizes revenue and expenses only when the money is changing hands. But accrual accounting recognizes revenue when it's earned and when expenses are being billed. So in other words,
0: accrual accounting would like take into account contracts to pay or to collect. Correct.
1: Yep. Most businesses they're paying for a cost of goods or they have invoices out, they have invoices coming in. In America, especially, like it's a it's a good opportunity to basically push the revenue down the road, so to speak. So like in America you have to pay taxes on what you earn that year. Well, if you buy a bunch of things towards the end of the year, you have to pay less taxes because your income is going to be reduced.
0: I think the other reason and relative to cash flow is that cash accounting can be confusing if you want to know like, what your theoretical cash flow is, right? If you have committed to a company to send them 50000 but you didn't just yet, and then you were to look at your P&L sheet and you see or you look at your cash flow projection. So it's worth mentioning that not only do you need balance sheets and P&Ls, but that's not good enough. Most businesses of some size also have cash flow sheet to help project and understand where the cash in the business is going to be. And So if you're using a cash accounting system, you forget about the fact that the $50,000 is off of the books, theoretically. You can't go spend that money again.
1: Correct. And so what we used to do Dan and I think this still definitely applies is we had a very basic spreadsheet that showed when our suppliers were going to get paid. So it was like, okay, X supplier is getting paid on August 1st for $50,000. Y supplier is getting paid on December 30th for $20,000. And then you can kind of look at your bank balance and say like, okay, payroll comes in the day before are we going to be able to make that payment to that supplier, or let's move this around? Let's let's email our supplier and say, "Hey, can we pay this
0: a day later or a week later or whatever it might be?" So we've defined a, a balance sheet, a cash flow sheet, a P and L. We've talked about margins and cost of goods sold. We've talked about cash flow. Let's talk about some tips. Oh yeah. And of course, all caveats here. A lot of these things, like you said, it's strange. Like they are judgment calls, and you know accountants are going to have different opinions than entrepreneurs. But let me uh, start in with a few tips and and see what you think. One of the things we talked a lot about, Ian, is cushion. And you can get a cash flow cushion from actual cash, from having great margins, from having a line of credit from the bank, or a lot of entrepreneurs use credit cards. You can even have a cash partner. But one of the things when you have a cash cushion, because you mentioned there's cash going in, there's cash going out, is... Things start to get a little theoretical and I think you can get yourself in a position here where you can take on unnecessary risk. I think this is one of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make when the business starts to grow into this theoretical cash flow, unintuitive zone. So do you have any tips on how to manage that cushion and how to stay fiscally responsible while still not holding back the growth of your company?
1: Yeah, so Dan, the first thing I think about in relationship to uh, cash flow is margins. If you have a high high margin product, meaning you know, maybe it costs you a dollar to make, but you sell it for 10, and it doesn't cost you very much to market it or whatnot, that's a great margin on a product, especially a physical product, right? And when you start to build up those types of margins, you're going to start to build up a big cash cushion. And that's ultimately what you want because you want to be able to buy product when you need product and sell product as fast as you can sell it. In our physical products company, we didn't have margins that great, but we had pretty good margins and we could essentially order whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted without a line of credit because we had good margins and we had a good cash cushion. And so that really allowed us to like grow as fast as possible. So the first thing I think when you're thinking about these cash flows is like, how is your margins? If you're finding that you have no cash cushion and you think you're running a good business, it could be actually because you don't have great margins in your business. But it also could be a a factor of like, hey, I've got to pay like a bunch of suppliers up front. They're not giving me credit terms. So these are some of the things that can be solved by like a line of credit
0: or trying to figure out some hard money or something in that arena. Well, and you're going to have this problem if your business is growing fast, even if you have good margins. So. Do you have rules of thumbs for how you think about margins? I mean, back in the day, we used to say with a physical goods product, you better be selling it for four times what you're landing it for in your warehouse. Margins are a choice, I'm tempted to say. Yeah, margins are a choice. Yeah.
1: (laughs) A lot of it's like a factor of the marketplace. A lot of it's the factor of competition. But it's good to know these things up front, hopefully before you get in the business and build an infrastructure around it to know if you're going to be able to survive. I mean... What happens when your competitor knocks you off? What happens when somebody figures out how to manufacture the product cheaper? Are you still going to be in business? And I think if you start with like a really high margin or as high as you possibly can, like things like that,
0: they might ding you, but in the end, hopefully you'll be able to survive them. Speaking of things being about a choice, let me advance this uh, theoretical point because I think that's one of the tricky things about speaking of cash flow is that it's not intuitive two tips that I've got, Ian, and you can piggyback off of them, is, is one is that there's no real conversation about cash flow without having good numbers. Like You absolutely must have a PL and l a balance sheet and numbers that you believe in and can see and can reference regularly. If you're not doing that, we're not having a conversation. And one of the things I think I undervalued earlier in my career, Ian, or didn't see the value of is having a simplicity Of your accounting and of incorporation. Something we've been working on recently is you know, a lot of times you introduce complexity into your business because it's clever legally, it's clever from a tax perspective, but you can pay a great deal on the back end of those things simply by flying blind, spending too much time and energy on the accounting of all of the complexity that you set up. So, certainly something that I advise to entrepreneurs and something that we're following up with going forward is trying to simplify all of our organizations so that they're very legible to us in terms of the numbers. Because otherwise, again, this thing is, like you said, it's like a choice, number one, and it's also theoretical. And so if you don't have like sort of clear numbers laying out the story of your business, and instead it's some strange Baroque organization it's gonna be hard to have an effective conversation about cash flow and making good decisions.
1: a couple things related to that Dan is a tip close your books out every month as fast as you possibly can so thirty first thirtieth comes around. I like to see my books close within five to ten days max because the sooner you can kind of close that month and reconcile and see like am I positive am i am I negative where am I at? the sooner you can get on the next month and make some decisions based on that so I highly recommend getting a bookkeeper involved. If you're doing it yourself, close your books out as soon as possible, start fresh the next month, figure out where you're at. The other thing that I'll mention about this is very few accountants and CPAs, especially in like a small business, I'd say like sub 5 million are incentivized or willing to help you work on issues like these in terms of cash flow. This is like the job of the entrepreneur. It's the job of the entrepreneur to like understand in your own business, how do I make this work? You have to reconcile with your suppliers, with your customers, with your team. Like, there's a lot of different components going on. And, like, really, I think that's the job of the entrepreneur. So, when we first got into business, Dan, it was my idea, like, oh, yeah, we'll just like hire an accountant. Like, somebody else can like look at these numbers. Like, no, it's actually you that needs to be looking at these numbers and understanding them. If you have to take an accounting course at the local junior college or whatever it is, do it. Do it. Yeah. You have to get up to speed.
0: My final tip on cash flow piggybacks directly on that i'm I'm really glad you brought up that point and unfortunately, I don't know if this advice will apply to dave and thanks shout out Dave for the wonderful voicemail but it's this idea of you know what accountants and lawyers will do for you at the sub five million dollar you know service level. They will help you set up complicated legal and accounting structures that are strategically interesting to maybe you and certainly to them, and they'll help you. Set it all up and give you the instructions and tell you why it's the greatest. But that's not the biggest opportunity for you as an entrepreneur. The biggest opportunity for you is to understand your cash flow and advocate for it as a force in the marketplace. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that you're just going to get beat up by everybody else's idea of cash flow unless you have a strong idea of what yours is, what it needs to be, what it ought to be in the future. And then you're out there advocating for it. And if instead you have such a complicated accounting or legal structure or bookkeepers not getting back to you and you're playing the shell game or whatever, you're not doing the work that you need to be doing, which is the work that you're advocating for, Ian, which is closing out your books at the end of the month, understanding where your position is, and then going out to your supplier and negotiating better terms or making the hard decision and improving your margins or going out and improving your financing rates because you can see the projections out to the end of the year and they're not going to work. Like, that's actually the biggest opportunity in terms of cash flow, in terms of advocating for your business as an entrepreneur, not with the clever incorporations and the fancy bookkeeping stuff.
1: Dan, let's mention a couple resources for if you do need cash flow help, because there's actually been some interesting options that have come up recently. I think number one resource is local bank. I think it's a good idea if you're in America to start a relationship with a local bank, like one without like a million branches, like one that understands your business that you can sit down with every once in a while, have lunch with, explain to them what's going on, hopefully have some assets that they might be interested in holding if they're going to give you a loan. That's not always the case, especially with like internet-based businesses. But I strongly recommend that you go with a local Bank and not such a big bank like Chase or Bank of America. When you're thinking about a banking partner, a lot of them in the past, the reason we didn't use them, Dan, was they didn't have like a lot of technology apps and whatnot. Now most banks have that. So it's very easy to bank, even with small local banks internationally. Another option, Dan, is hard money loan. So basically, a hard money loan is usually from somebody wealthy. It could be a family or friend. There's also networks of hard money. And a lot of times the rates are very high. And a lot of times they're for very short periods of time. It's basically like a bullet loan or a hard money loan. And they will loan you money for a short period of time for a very high rate. There's a lot more options. But one of the final options that's coming up is Stripe, who's a payment processor. They just announced last week that they have a credit card now. And then they also have basically loans that are available. And I think there's some some interesting things going on with this. There's some people commenting on Hacker News if you want to look over there. The rates are very
0: high. I mean essentially what Stripe is coming along saying is look, we'll provide you with financing similar to maybe what a credit card would do, but instead of charging you a consistent interest rate over like month over month or year over year, we are going to take our cut, we're going to take our loan back relative to the revenue you're bringing through Stripe. Because they're a payment
1: processor, essentially. So they just take their money right off the money that's coming into your account.
0: Which is a cool idea if you own a seasonal business, for example. You're going to be paying straight back when when your revenue is coming in.
1: Here's why I think this is interesting, Dan. One is um, the APR or the percentage that you owe them on the money loan is very high. Like you said, it's basically credit card high, if not higher. I think it's interesting that they're competing with
0: credit cards. Well, they're charging a premium for people who have not listened to this episode, essentially. (laughs) Exactly. They're saying if you don't understand your cash flow, if you haven't planned for the holiday season or whatever, no worries. Like We'll take care of that for you and just let you pay us back when things are going well. But in return, we are going to charge you a Darwin tax, and it's going to cost you.
1: I'm looking at this deal, and a couple things come up into my mind. Okay. So one is an unethical life pro tip. If you're on Reddit, that's a thing now. Okay. The idea is basically in America, it's very easy to walk away from personal debt. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it or whatever, but if you take out a credit card and you decide to run it up, you're not going to jail in America, which is pretty amazing in my view, but it's the truth. The other thing that I think is interesting about this Stripe deal The reason they're able to come in and the reason they're able to charge what they're charging is because traditional financial institutions, aka banks, I wouldn't say are not all well-versed at these internet-based businesses, but they don't understand them. They're not responding to the challenge. The assets are not something that they're interested in holding, like a house, right? So people like Stripe and other people are coming in and they're saying, hey, we understand your business or hey, we're willing to take the risk because the APR is high enough. Here's some money. So, I think what we're going to see, Dan, over the next couple of years is companies like Stripe coming in, offering this type of financing to these companies. But I think what's really going to be interesting is when a financial partner actually understands your business, these internet based businesses, they understand the assets. They're willing to put a lien against them and they're going to give you lower rates because that's essentially what's going on right now. It's like, hey, we understand the asset. We're not going to hold it. Well, in Stripe's case, they're going to hold your merchant account, I guess, in some way, shape, or form. But if you default, like, you know, the APR was so high, we probably made some money on it.
0: Well, here's the bottom line. You know, margin is a choice and so is cash flow. And if your business depends on clever financing, frankly, it's not the sort of business that I would want to run. And I think that that's a choice, too. You want to rank higher in Google? You got to get in touch with today's sponsor, SmashDigital.com. That's right. It's Travis Jameson's amazing SEO company, which provides SEO services, link building, and for TMBA listeners, personalized mini audits. Here's Travis in his own words. We can take a look at your site from what Google sees. We can see
1: how it's structured. We can see the links that you have. And in a short few minute video can add a ton of value to a lot of people's sites. Even if you're pretty advanced at this stuff, well, hey, that's going to make our job easier. We can say the specific things of probably what you need to do. Or if it's, you know, a site that's whew, got a long ways to go, which we've seen some of, then we can kind of, you know, steer them in the big picture direction of how to improve stuff. Or even just get them stuff to read. But the, the videos just kind of like cover all that stuff.
0: Travis has long been a trailblazer in the SEO field, not just regurgitating Google's best practices. They call it SEO with skin in a game that's using the same strategies they're using on Travis's personal portfolio of businesses on their clients. So check out an SEO company that's zigging when everybody else is zagging. Get in touch with the team over at smashdigital.com. So next listener question, email regarding all sorts of things, especially entrepreneur mobiles. So we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into not only cars, cutting some deals, but also mobile home living. And it's all inspired by an email from Sam Little with the subject line, 2000 day update. So give me a moment here, Ian, put on your reading glasses and I'm going to read Sam's update. About five years ago, when you were talking about entrepreneur mobiles, I submitted mine, which was a single wide, quote, mobile home trailer for my family, wife, and three kids. And I lived in it for 18 months after moving out of the suburbs to cut costs for my new business. The first year or two was really tough, but eventually the business landed a big contract and things started moving along. We moved into a larger thousand foot square house and had our fourth kid. And in year two, it felt like a mansion. Last year was our best. And now the business has a legit team of eight employees. The family and I have also moved again at the end of last year into a log cabin on a hill. And it really feels like a mansion though. It isn't that big and is 30 years old. You got to keep those expectations low. Our next move will be when we build the dream house on the 30-acre hill we bought from my parents where I grew up. As nice as it is to run a growing business from home, the downside of the business is that it has been a services business, which makes it really inconsistent work. Over the past month, I think I've figured out how to convert what we're doing into a software application and ultimately convert it into a SaaS business. To speed things up, I will potentially take on investors. Anyway, I'll check back in a few years after the launch and we are further along in the transition to SaaS. Keep it up and keep it real, Sam. Shout out, Sam. I got to say the cool thing is, is, look, it's one thing for a single entrepreneur to move somewhere cheap in the world or to downsize, but it's another thing to get the whole family on board and convince them as well and to go along on that journey together. And the reality is, is for so many of us starting a business, that's what it takes. You have to keep those expectations low because you need to put a lot of resources into a business that, you know, what's this old Dave Ramsey personal finance thing? If you want to live like no one else, you got to live like no one else.
1: And what you're saying, Dan, about like convincing your partner to live in a single wide or a mobile home, You guys better have that conversation before you get real and have some kids. (laughs) And I'm serious about this. Like a lot of people make try to make this transition to entrepreneurship a little bit later in life. These are the sacrifices, honestly, that you have to make. And it doesn't work out because one of the partners isn't willing to do this. And which is totally understandable, which is like, hey, we have this agreement, you know, we're living in the suburbs with this great house. Now you want to live in a double wide. I'm not on board with that. Like You got to stay at your job. I think that's a real conversation. It happens all the time. So make sure you're on the same
0: page. You know, here's the thing. We're on the same page about two things, Ian. For most entrepreneurs, the two biggest expenses outside of business in life are housing and transportation. We discussed the housing, but we're going to do a deep dive today in the transportation side. In a little segment, we're going to call Bossman talks entrepreneur mobiles. Oh, yeah. Let's dig into this concept just a little bit. An entrepreneur mobile is, of course, technically a car that is fully depreciated. So, all that fluff money, you know, people always say, Ian, you drive a new car off the lot, it's worth half the price or whatever. Well, as an entrepreneur, we can't afford that cash drain. So, what we want to do is get the car at the bottom of the value curve so that our money is uh, well-spent, in other words.
1: Right, Dan. So I originally wrote the Entrepreneur Mobile as a blog post. It's over at the Tropical MBA. You can go check it out. It's got like over 100 comments. And that was the principle exactly, which is basically you buy this asset, quote, asset, when it's fully depreciated, when it's lost all of its value. And then you drive it for as long as you need to drive it. And you can sell it for essentially the same price there are a lot of different stages of value loss in a vehicle. And I think one of the things that we can continue to explore on this show and certainly in blog post form that I've been thinking about is like the different tiers of value, because it is possible to buy at a different tier, like when it's lost half of its value or three quarters or even a quarter and drive it for a year or two and not lose as much money as if you kept the car for much longer.
0: Yeah. And I want to point out some general things after having bought a handful of entrepreneur mobiles myself, having trying to translate a lot of your theories into practice, and not being as comfortable with cars as you are. We're also going to get into like specific makes and models in this episode because listeners have requested it. But one of the things I wanted to point out that one of the core concepts at the core of the entrepreneur mobile is actually using the Lindy principle. Yeah, a little bit. And this Lindy principle, once I learned about it, it keeps coming up in my life everywhere, which is essentially. How long something's likely to be around in the future can be at least approximated by or guessed at by how long it's been around in the past. So, you know, will people read the Bible in 3,000 years from now? Decent chance because they read it 3,000 years ago. Whereas will people read the four-hour work week 3,000 years from now? Probably not because they've only been reading it for a few years. So how does this apply to cars or, or any kind of purchase really? Well, you can look at how long that product has been in the marketplace and how well regarded it's been while it's been there and you can simply do this by driving around and looking at the street like looking how what are the 15 year old cars that are still around and out on the street
1: for example if you're in front of a computer google 2008 ford taurus which was only about 11 years (laughs) ago and tell me when the last
0: time you saw one of those pieces was it's the same thing with like uh, you know buying these old bike frames. Like the bike industry comes out with these weird new designs every year, and like half of them fall flat. So like why don't you just buy the design that's been around for five years, and then you know it's going to be around for five more.
1: So as it pertains to cars, Dan, there's several models of cars that have like gone through generations and generations, like the BMW 3 Series, the Mercedes E 350, the Ford F 150. These are products. These are flagships of these brands and they're constantly tweaking them. Now, it's not to say they won't have a bad year or two here or there, but in general, there is an evolution of the product and it does generally get better.
0: One other thing I think it's worth looking into when you look at the overall models that have good reputations is you're often prodding me to look at the actual power plant. What do you mean by that? Well, it's the
1: same idea, right? Is like this engine... This power plant has been around for 10 years. They're just making minor tweaks to improve it. So a lot of times a new car comes out and it's a whole new chassis. It's a whole new everything, including the motor. And yeah, these manufacturers, they do testing for several years before the cars come out. But really it's the first year that it's in production. It's the first year that it's mass produced and all this stuff. Not generally the best year to buy. I like buying cars or especially that fit into this entrepreneur mobile. Framework that have been around for a long time, that the power plant's been the same, that they've made minor tweaks. It's something that's reliable. It's something that I can count on. It's something that I can get parts for. It's something that has a history, a legacy.
0: And because of that, it's generally a better value. Now, before we get into some of the makes and models here, I have to ask you about self driving cars and Teslas and stuff like that. I'm, this is kind of cool in the tech space. We're all looking forward to a day when the whole car situation. Is different. When is that day? It's
1: coming up. I've had the opportunity to drive a Tesla. I mean it's truly amazing that it can basically drive itself. And I think it's gonna be a total game changer. A lot of companies are competing to catch up with Tesla. I think Tesla's still in the lead. Tesla does have some like shortcomings though. The fit and finish isn't great. You can't really work on a Tesla yourself, so that kind of scares me. They've retain a lot more of their value than a lot of their competitors do but they still do depreciate. There's an interesting used market for Teslas. I think that it's coming, but every time I think it's here, it's like, oh man, it's going to be like another three or four years.
0: All right, Bossman, what I want you to do now is put your chips down on some certified Bossman approved entrepreneur mobiles. And if you're listening to this pod and one of these fine automobiles, give us a shout out. What cars do you feel like are are good investments?
1: Well, first things first, Go over to the blog post that I wrote about entrepreneur mobiles. I still think that list is very relevant. This list that I've compiled today, Dan, it's not necessarily cars that have lost all of their value completely. It's cars that are good value, but are maybe a little bit more expensive. So, first, Dan, I think like most importantly is like, let's talk about the things to stay away from because there's a lot more things that you should stay away from than there are things that you should go after. Okay. A lot of this is like nuanced or whatever, but like I've been working on and racing cars for like basically my whole life, and I've like watched this industry religiously. There is not a Chrysler or a Dodge product, unless it's a Jeep, that I would buy. Okay, straight away. Like the fit and finish isn't great. The resale is absolutely horrible,
0: and they're just not really trusted products. Like I just would not buy one. By the way, I just want to say about Chrysler and Dodge products is like their designs are the most un Lindy thing ever. Correct. They always come out with something that's like funky looking and you're like, whoa, that's kind of cool. And then three years later you're like shameful about the fact that you (laughs) thought it was cool. Like, oh god, I hope no one heard me.
1: (laughs) You're absolutely true. They hit the design on the head. Like I think that's what they really do well, is they bring in buyers, especially young buyers, with cool designs. And then they fall short in terms of reliability and resale. The other products that I think are becoming interesting, but I still wouldn't buy one are the Korean products, so the Hyundais and the Kias. Hyundai is like really becoming a premium product. They're going head-to-head with Japan in terms of the Toyotas and the Hondas. I would drive one. I still wouldn't buy one because of the resale value. Okay. And the Kia is even worse. The Hyundai is a great product. It's a really good product. If you If you were forced to not buy a Toyota, you could buy a Hyundai, but the resale value still isn't as good as a Toyota.
0: If you're, you know, like a corporate salesperson and you need to get around the country and you got like a <laughs> lease allowance, maybe get a Hyundai, right? Yeah, there's some. they have some cool features and
1: whatnot. For me, again, it comes back to value and resale. You can have better value and resale on the Japanese products. Cool. So with that said, Dan, these days Toyota is absolutely crushing it. If I didn't care what my car looked like, <laughs> if I didn't care what my car looked like, I would buy a Toyota. Reliability, is excellent. Resale is excellent. They have a loyal following. They also have great cars in every categories. Huh? So they have a great midsize SUV. They have a great truck. They have a great car, which is impressive. Like it's a family of products that they've designed to like meet all your needs. I would absolutely, I think these days, Dan, this has changed in the last 10 years. I would recommend a Toyota over a Honda. Honda's kind of lost their way in a lot of ways. Like you can kind of see it with the design. Hondas used to be really cool. They used to be really edgy and then they got really boring and then they've tried to come back edgy, but now it's like a design language that people don't understand. I also think like, although they're very reliable still, they're not as reliable as the Toyota. So I don't think you can really go wrong buying a Toyota these days, Dan. They have a cool hybrid, which is very reliable. The Prius, their Tundra, which is like a half ton truck is a great truck for what it is. And their SUVs, the Highlander, is a great
0: vehicle as well. Let's just get you down on a few other brands here, boss man.
1: Yeah, I'll talk about a couple individual cars that I think are are interesting. The Mazda 3, very reliable car. The Mazda 6 is a little bit of a bigger version. That's also a good car, especially the later ones. The earlier ones, not so much. Mercedes E350, I got to talk about this car because I actually own one. This is a product that we talked about at the beginning here, Dan, that has been an evolution. So they started making it a long time ago, and they're still making it. And essentially, the last like 10 years has been the same power plant. So they've really refined this car. And it's also one of the safest cars on the road. And on top of it, if you buy it used, it can be a great value. My car new, Dan, do you know how much it was? My Mercedes E350? My guess is 65000 Yes, exactly. $65,000 new. Do you know how much I bought it for? 9000 bucks. <laughs> 6000 bucks. Fully depreciated. <laughs> and it's still one of the safest cars on the road. It's a lot of car for what you can get. Same thing goes, Dan, with the 3 Series,
0: although like I'm becoming less and less of a BMW fan. All right, let's talk about having some fun, boss, man. You've told us about a lot of responsible cars. I'm having a midlife crisis over here. Can I get something fun? you're having a midlife crisis.
1: Okay, I want to share a secret on the show. Essentially, Ferrari is like the master at protecting the value of these assets. And the reason they do it is because they want to control the market. So to be able to go buy the new P90 Ferrari, you have to own another Ferrari. And so it gets you into the family of Ferraris, but it also protects your investment because they make a limited quantity of these things. It is not uncommon for Ferrari owners to drive their Ferrari for one to three years and make several hundred thousand dollars on these cars. That, to me, Dan, is crazy, but it's also cool. So that means if you have the means to go out and buy your first Ferrari, which you have to go out and buy used, you might be invited to buy a new Ferrari. With these newer Ferraris, you can drive them for a couple years, assuming you don't put a lot of miles on them, and you can sell them for a bunch more than you bought them for. The reason I bring it up, Dan, is because a lot of sports cars depreciate. Ferrari is one of these brands that you can actually buy and make money with. But let's talk about a couple of cars that have like fully depreciated that are still fun to drive. Here's my fun picks, Dan. C5 Corvette, awful interior, a boatload of fun to drive. You can get these things for like $10,000 now. It's a ton of car for the money. Okay. Next car on the list, I've owned like 100 of these things. It's a Mazda Miata. It is the most- And you're not exaggerating. No, no, no. I've probably owned (laughs) 100 of these things. Very reliable, lightweight sports car, easy to work on, fun. A lot of them are fully depreciated. You can get one with like a hard top and all this stuff, and it's like $15,000. So, highly recommend the Miata. The other fun car that's on the list that's going to require a little bit more maintenance is the Porsche Boxster. These things have hit absolute rock bottom. You can find them for like $5,000 or less. One thing you got to look out for on the Porsche, it's called the IMS Bearing. And if you go on the forums, you're going to read all about it. Make sure that you buy one that's had the clutch replaced and the IMS Bearing upgraded. If you do and you find one for $5,000, it's a lot of fun.
0: The other thing you wrote down here is a full-size truck. So you might as well, while we're talking uh, Lindy Principle and other Nassim Taleb Statements, you might as well put some skin in the game, boss man, and let us know uh, what car you've recently purchased.
1: Yeah, Dan, I think trucks are an interesting option. I don't know if Dan, you follow Mr. Money Mustache. I do not enjoy riding lumber on my back or on my trailer behind my bike 15 miles. Like, I just prefer (laughs) to put it in my truck and drive home and then save the planet other ways. (laughs) So I drive a truck, yeah, from time to time. But there's a couple interesting reasons, I think, Dan, to own a truck if you're an entrepreneur. Yes, they're not like the most efficient vehicles, but I actually have a use for a truck. Like I haul race cars around, home projects, things like this. I use a truck all the time. The other thing that you might have noticed, Dan, when you're in my truck, it's a full-size car. Like you can fit a bunch of people into it and then it has a bed on the back. So it's actually a pretty practical vehicle minus the gas mileage. There are some trucks. Actually, there's a brand new truck that's supposed to be coming out in a couple of years. That's all electric. I think that's going to be super cool. Hmm. But with these trucks, here's the interesting opportunity, Dan, that's come up, is they are an asset, if you buy it on your business, that you can write off. And new rules say that you can write it off between one and five years, I believe. So that means if you have a good year and you bought a new truck, you can write it all off in one year. So it can be used as a tool to aid you in your personal finances. And if you happen to use a truck from time to time, it can be useful.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, if you think about the tax savings alone could outpace depreciation for years. Oh, yeah. I think if you have a need for a truck, that makes sense, Dan. Well, this is great because uh, I'll be purchasing a new car in February. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, boss man. Drop us a note if you got a topic that you'd like us to cover. If you'd like like us to analyze your automobile or if you got some insights onto this topic. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this Q&A session. It's satisfying to me to talk about cars with the boss man because first off, business can be complicated and it's not clear what the right or wrong answers are. And I feel like a lot of my days are just this giant gray blob of like, what am I going to do? But with cars, it's kind of like, hey, here's an object. Do you like it? Is it good? Is it bad? It's It's always a fun conversation. You probably won't be surprised to hear that we had to cut out an extended segment on trucks and RVs, which just we just could not cram into this episode. So perhaps on a forthcoming show, if you so request, and uh, if you're not completely sick of the automobile talk, let us know. We appreciate as always your questions, your emails do feel free to reach out to us. Now, of course it is that time again. It is time for a dynamite deal. <laughs> Welcome to the Deal Den. This is Dynamite Deals, of course, where we go out on your behalf and cut you an incredible deal on a product or service that can help grow or improve your business. The feedback from you guys has been outstanding on these deals and helpful as well. So I appreciate all that. So what I want to do is extend this segment just a little bit to provide some inside baseball and what's going on here at uh, Deals. But first, I want to talk about this week's deal, which, which is an extension and clarification of last week's deal. So this is a trademark registration service provided soup to nuts by a lawyer, Sarah Cornblatt from Destination Legal, who understands and works with online businesses regularly. So she's willing to manage the entire project on your behalf, registering your trademark and preventing others from using it and going back and forth with the government. It also covers the filing fee. So in other words, you click the button at dynamitedeals.co and the process gets rolling and you don't pay anything until the process is over. That's the idea of this productized service. Get your trademark sorted out for the low, low price of $1,225. That is close to a $1,000 discount of what Sarah normally charges. So if you've been dragging your feet on registering your trademark for that new business or heaven forbid you're operating a business that's making money and you haven't invested in owning that intellectual property, go over to dynamitedeals.co today and click that button. It really is an incredible deal and so many of you have already taken us up on it. Now, why extend this deal for another week? First off, Sarah has more capacity, so she can continue to serve at a high quality for another week's worth of customers. And so many of you have been asking us good questions about the deals we've been presenting, giving us critical feedback on how we can present things better. You know, The challenge of presenting a productized service has been tough. But some folks reached out to us and said, well, how is this different from a service like LegalZoom? I'd like to give Sarah's response to this, actually. One of the things she mentioned is she gets a lot of her clients from LegalZoom clients that essentially their trademark process broke down and they ended up having to reach out to a lawyer at a much higher rate than this deal, by the way. Because the reality is with a lot of these applications, and I've personally done a lot of them, is that they can get complicated and there's not always like a straightforward answer of what's going on and how to deal with it. And you have to reposition things effectively. And in other words, like there can be back and forth. There can be correspondence. So. I think there was some confusion in how we initially posted the deal that some folks thought this was a documentation deal that, hey, we're just going to buy documentation and then I'm going to submit this and then that's going to be the end of it. No, this is like a fixed price to start a relationship with counsel on your behalf. And one of the things that you know Ian and I were talking about this on the phone a few days ago and he's like, look, part of the reason I'm passionate about this deal is it can cost this much just to get... A lawyer up to speed on your business. If you set up appointments and start sending them back and forth information, if you go with this particular dynamite deal, it's a way for twelve hundred twenty-five bucks to get an experienced lawyer understanding what's going on with the intellectual property in your business and how you go about doing things. So that's basically the idea here. We got a lot of great feedback on the copy on our website. You know that we weren't clarifying how it's different from, of course, the billable hours thing. Going to Services that are sort of a set documents out there like LegalZoom and I thought, hey, it's worth running this thing for another week to give people that are still considering whether or not this is a good deal for them the opportunity to to weigh that decision and and if I'm being completely honest, it all also give us an opportunity to clarify our pipeline and try to get future deals that have a greater deal of clarity. I also promised some inside baseball on this deals thing. This is similar to what we've done with dynamite jobs over the past couple years which is you know we saw a common thing going down in our community which is people were wanting to go to our events to hire each other or they wanted to bring their employees to our events because I think what people were finding is that the cultural cohesiveness I guess that exists at in a community like the TMBA listenership and the Dynamite Circle it creates a great place to find like minds and people that are sort of on brand, so to speak. And the same thing's been happening for years and years and years with this thing we've called DC offers. But we also see it at our events all the time. I mean, people are just cutting deals with each other left and right. And there's such a enormous amount of highly bespoke, really interesting, really growth-oriented sort of B2B services in the community. And I I sort of got this bug in my mind. Like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could like present these in a more clarified, systematic way to the audience? And that's sort of the idea behind this. And the emails that have been rolling in from you guys, the feedback, the amount of you that have participated in this deals have been absolutely awesome. And I appreciate the support. It's really cool. It looks like it might be a fun little business unit next year in 2020. So We'll keep you updated on the progress at Dynamite Deals. I just wanted to let you know. I know we came on and said this was going to be a two-week deal, but I think it makes sense to extend it for yet another week. So Sarah will be continuing to support this productized service for another week. And if you want to get your trademark file for 1225 bucks, go check her out and feel free to ask her or our team any questions about this. We appreciate it as always. And uh, that's, that's the end of uh, what's the deal with Dynamite Deals for this week. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.